Inside Westminster, Chapter 214, Countless Betrayals. Sabbath Malik, business secretary, was tired beyond anything he'd ever experienced. But so was everyone involved in the Covid nightmare. Do you think I've got asymptomatic Covid, he said to his wife, Oriole, as he downed his first soothing whisky, having returned from work late as was usual these days. Well, it's easy enough to check. Why don't you book a test, she replied. Time, Oriole. I just don't have a spare second, he replied. Surely they've got tests on hand in Downing Street. After all, you're classed as a key worker, aren't you? She said, trying to be helpful. You think, Malik replied, almost sarcastically, though all he could think of was his leaving the role of Secretary of State for Business, Energy and Industrial Strategy and moving to head up COP26, a role which two former Prime Ministers had turned down. Well, if there's anything I can do, let me know, Oriel retorted. A million miles away in every sense, another couple were having a friendly chat over their first cup of coffee of the day. Madania was trying to piece together exactly what had happened the day before. Please don't tell me this was what you intended, she asked calmly, masking the intensity of emotion she really felt. Look, Melania, the Donald never loses, he drawled, adding, and since it was stolen from me, I'm just taking back what's rightfully mine. Melania got up with great composure left the sun-filled morning room and went upstairs, where she threw a few items of clothing into a suitcase. She went down the back staircase to the fleet of cars and drivers. Ted, she said to one of the drivers, who was playing cards with a group of guards in the restroom. Can you please take me back to my suite in the Melrose, Georgetown? Certainly, ma'am, Ted responded. And with that, Melania made her feelings known to her husband without wasting her time or breath. The appalling scenes from the Capitol building playing out across the world were to prove to be the final straw for the long-suffering Melania. She had been brought up to expect a man to be authoritative, strong and wealthy. Not only did she admire these traits, but needed to have them in any man who was to share her life. But although she herself was on her husband's side in almost every respect, not shying away from the rhetoric he used or the actions he'd taken, what was going on now was too much, was just too much, and she decided to cut her losses some time back. She toyed whether she should call Tony to see if he'd be willing to come over to her suite to deliver one of his achingly wondrous massages, but thought better of it as she was wise enough and in control of her emotions sufficiently to not put herself in a position where something could happen in the heat of the moment. Perhaps later she'd thought to herself. She knew that her masseurs was in love with her, she sensed it in his every touch, and she knew Tony would be totally aware that he'd have been done for if he'd let his feelings rip. Now, 
or now things were different, and Melania felt she not only needed but deserved some decent sex. After all, her marriage to Trump was one of convenience and appearance for them both. Part of the nuptial agreement had been that Trump wouldn't expect a physical aspect to the deal. That's why the crazy affairs with even crazier women hadn't rocked her too much. Her only anger was directed at her husband's carelessness, not at his infidelity. Trump couldn't have cared less at any embarrassing, even exaggerated reports as he felt they burnished his macho image, though he changed his tune when one of his mistresses let slip that his was the teeniest of pleasure tools. She likened it to a mushroom. Yuck, he'd thought, swearing he'd never ever let one of those tasteless fungi pass his lips ever again. Melania, well, she had taken it all all in her stride, calmly asserting that, no, I'm not concerned about these lies and their lying perpetrators, as I'm far too busy being a mother and first lady. Well said, agreed every wronged woman who'd secretly admired the first lady of the US's coolness under fire. As for their son... Well, everything was possible these days, and the appliance of science had worked wonderfully well, enabling Melania to produce her son, who was her pride and joy, and the only person she truly cared about. Apart from herself, of course. She had spent much of the term as Flotus, crafting a book on the treasures of the White House, emblematic of the depth of her aspirations, the documenting of acquisitions and stuff being more important than too much tiresome charity work. And then the resignations started pouring in. Like rats jumping a burning ship, Trump had asserted. This, along with lie-filled memoirs and personal accounts of so-and-so's time in the White House, or their time as the First Lady's special adviser, appeared on bookshelves in a veritable tsunami. All lies, ranted Trump, most hurt by his niece's ramblings, his description, not hers, written as an explanation as to why they'd become estranged decades earlier over financial legacies. Hers hurt as it had a moral authority that the others lacked, there being mere salacious gossip. And of course he hadn't spoken to his deputy for weeks, as they'd fallen out over, well, everything. Trump did not brook dissent from anyone, so Pence had been sent to the naughty corner. But now that the chips were down and he faced a record-breaking second impeachment, or simply being removed from office, so Pence would end up running the show till inauguration, Trump climbed down from his high horse and phoned his vice president as though nothing had happened. You couldn't make it up, Pence said to his wife. The man's a nut job, but what alternative do I have but to support him till the end? Indeed. Trump had locked himself in his White House bedroom suite, refusing to talk to anyone apart from his daughter. Dearest Daddy, please come out, she pleaded. No, no, I won't, retorted Trump. No one understands what I'm trying to do. No one sees the trap this nation is willfully jumping into. Yes, I do, Daddy, pleaded his daughter, not convinced of any argument she was putting forward, but desperate for her father to man up and face the music. After several hours of this pathetic toing and froing, Trump, un- Trump unlocked the door. He needed a crap and had run out of loo paper in the lavish bathroom, but to save face, he made out that he was ready to respond to the world's condemnation of his instigating sedition.
Stay strong, stay true, was what he said, which could have meant anything except sorry, which he certainly wasn't. Unreality was now what was fabricated on social media platforms, and Trump had been the master purveyor of that. After all, he'd masterminded the genius creation of fake news. He also believed in communicating his unhinged diatribes directly to his supporters, or patriots as he liked to call them. So he nearly cried when he found out he'd been banned from Facebook, Instagram and Twitter. It was like a two-year-old boy having his one and only toy confiscated, which is what his father was wont to do to his male children. Not the daughters, Trump had noticed, taunting them that only losers lose their toys. Like a scolded cat, he yowled aloud, too, when he found out that that ugly bitch, Monica Monkfish, First Minister of Scotland, had banned him from taking a few days' holiday in his own resort on the northern shores of that bonny land. His days of being a pariah had only just begun, and he knew that, having lost the election, lost the rioting, trouncing he was going to inflict on the US, caused the escalating and unfettered nightmare of the pandemic, which had infected nearly 25 million Americans to date and was wrecking the economy, which he'd prided himself on regenerating, he and his family were going to pay one hell of a price. Bizarrely, another set of self-opinionated spot brats were parted from their social media accounts, though this time by their own hand. Their sensitivity to all the vitriol hurled at them from unknown and dark places had finally proved too much to take for sassy, sassy Winchester, and she knew that the gain of all that free exposure and massive promotion did not compensate for the hurt inflicted through the computer screen. She couldn't fathom why she wasn't loved and admired by everyone. Back in Downing Street, the PM woke in a sweaty lather. He'd had a nightmare about the number three. How come? his bedmate Mandy asked. Well, blustered Potty, three million people are now infected. It's the third lockdown in 300 days, and I've just read a report that says a third of Londoners have been infected. Oh, said Mandy, who long ago was lost for words regarding this topic, which, for an opinionated female, was quite something. In a comfy large house made of golden stone in the depths of the Cotswolds' tr- golden triangle, Alexandra Cannon was feeling somewhere between chastened and stupid. Chastened that she could have put her darling children at risk, and stupid because, as having become one of the metropolitan elite, obviously married to an ex-Prime Minister, she realised she had a serious amount to learn about conducting the life of a country squire's wife which, due to Covid, she and her brood were doing. How could I have missed that one? She said, in as near to a complaining voice as was possible for the impossibly serene Alex. Look, my sweet, no one died. It's only chicken feed anyway, Cannon replied, trying to soothe his wife's disquiet. But we look such idiots, continued Alex, adding, and why wouldn't the WI just have rung me up? I'd have got our birds into their shed straight away. Who contacted the star, I wondered, quizzed Cannon, inwardly wondering if it was that harridan diarist and betrayer of loyal friends, Vixie Squire. Alex had assumed the Dobber had been a member of her local WI, as it had been the branch general secretary who had phoned her to tell her to get her birds inside pronto. 
but not before the article about the canon's leisurely faux-country lifestyle had appeared. It hurt Alex, as it was a genuine mistake. She was blissfully unaware that avian flu was circulating in the area. And also, she actually had spent a wild childhood in the depths of her parents' estate, Ballycorker Castle, where she and her siblings had learnt all about the birds and the bees, watching her father's magnificent Palomino stallion covering numerous mares. Alex had been the keenest of nature lovers and had revelled in helping out on the family estate, but it was her sister, Katerina, who had fulfilled their early horsey dreams by becoming an accomplished horsewoman and eventually a member of the British Olympic Equestrian Squad, competing alongside various famous and colourful characters and rubbing shoulders with many of the young royals. But as her husband always said by way of reassurance, no one's dead yet. And at least that was true.